Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome to today's episode of Health Tree Podcast for AML a podcast that connects patients with acute myeloid leukemia researchers. I'm your host, Kara Thayman. We'd like to thank our episode sponsor, AbbVie, for their support of this Health Tree podcast for AML episode. Before we get started with today's show, I'd like to mention an upcoming event that we will be hosting. On July 14th at 11 a.m. Eastern, we will host another Health Tree podcast for AML episode. We will be joined by Dr. Rory Shallis from the Smilo Cancer Center Hospital at Yale New Haven Hospital. Dr. Shallis will be discussing the complicated and difficult to treat TP53 genetic mutation, where we are with current treatment options and research from current clinical trials. Also, I'm excited to announce that on July 19th at 2 p.m. Eastern, we will be hosting a virtual Health Tree Roundtable for AML event. We have invited two AML experts to join us, Dr. Uma Barate from the James Comprehensive Cancer Center at Ohio State University and Dr. Naval Daver from MD Anderson Cancer Center. They will be joining us to give a mid-year update on AML news, emerging treatments, research, and clinical trials. I hope you all join us for this informative discussion. As a reminder for today's show, if you have joined us online and would like to be able to ask Dr. Liesveld a question during our Q&A period at the end, you will need to call in via telephone to 515-602-9728 and press 1 on your keypad when you are ready to ask your question. And now on to our show today. The FLT3 gene mutation is the most common mutation seen in acute myeloid leukemia patients, occurring in up to 37% of adult cases. FLT3 mutations have historically been harder to treat with poorer outcomes. However, with combination therapies using targeted drugs such as FLT3 inhibitors, outcomes have improved. The development of FLT3 inhibitors has progressed in recent years, and there are currently two FDA-approved options mitostorin, and gilteritinib. There are also several FLT3 inhibitor drugs in development and being tested in clinical trials. Dr. Jane Liesveld is here with us today from the University of Rochester to discuss the FLT3 mutation, FLT3 inhibitor drug options currently available and in development, and share the research from a, flu- from a few of the clinical trials exploring new drugs. We are so pleased to have you here with us today on the show, Dr. Liesveld. But before we get started, let me provide an introduction for you. Dr. Liesveld is a professor of medicine in the Division of Hematology and Oncology and clinical director of the Blood and Marrow Transplantation Program at the University of Rochester. Dr. Liesveld's research is focused on all types of leukemia, myeloproliferative disorders, myelodysplastic syndromes, multiple myeloma, and stem cell transplantation. 
Her work has been published in many prestigious journals. Welcome, Dr. Liesel, to the show. Thank you, Kareth, and um, it's my pleasure to be here with the um, Health Tree AML community and to have this discussion over the next hour. Thank you so much. Um, we're happy to have you here. So let's go ahead and jump into our questions today. Dr. Liesel, can you briefly tell us about the flip-through mutation, how patients are tested for it, and why it has historically been a hard-to-treat mutation? Sure, I think that's a great place to start. And as as was mentioned in the introduction, this is the most common mutation that we see in our patients who have acute myelogenous leukemia. And it's one of the mutations that is recommended to be tested for in all patients at diagnosis um, that goes along with other mutations like NPM1, IDH1 and 2, TP53, and a few others that are part of routine panels. And it's so important to test for this because uh, this does have impact on treatment now, not only in the upfront setting, but later in our patients that would have relapse as their course unfolds. The FLT3 um, mutation is present, as was mentioned, in about 30% of cases with AML. And what's interesting about it is that while it's um, common in those who are middle-aged, it can be seen throughout the age spectrum. So there are children who have FLT3-positive AML. There are also um, older patients who have these mutations. And it's also important to remember that these mutations are of, of two types, and we'll, we'll talk about that in, in a bit. But first of all, just to kind of explain what this um, mutation is, FLT3 stands for FIMS-like tyrosine kinase. And um, what that means is that this is a um, protein that um, binds to a cell membrane and um, signals into the cell so that it gives the cell a um, signal to grow or proliferate. Um, it has impact on differentiation of cells, so all these blood stem cells that need to eventually form red cells or white cells or platelets, it has impact in that. And it also um, helps cells to um, prevent um, going, undergoing a programmed cell death. So it has importance in normal blood cell production. And, and in some of our patients with leukemia, this particular um, receptor becomes um, mutated or changed so that um, it is always kind of firing continuously, and that gives the cells that have this change in the DNA or a mutation um, a proliferative advantage over other stem cells, and that um, can contribute to the, the leukemia. These mutations are of two types. One is called internal tandem duplication, and what that means is that there's a change in the um, part of the um, protein that um, signals through the membrane, and it causes this um, to be um, active all the time so that it doesn't have to um, join with another part of the receptor, but it can just keep signaling constantly. And then there are other mutations that are called tyrosine kinase domain mutations, and they're in a different part 
of the um, receptor. And there again, this um, mutation, which is usually just a point change in the DNA of this particular um, gene, um, will cause this um, protein to be able to um, uh, kind of resist any controls that the cell would normally have in place for this. And as a result of the, both of these mutations, um, the leukemia cells have a proliferative advantage and um, can grow. Um, the internal tandem uh, duplication mutations are the most common. As was mentioned, about 30% of patients with AML can harbor these mutations, and about um, 20 to 25% have the ITD mutation, whereas only about 5 to 10% have that tyrosine kinase um, uh, domain mutation. And it is important to distinguish those because they do have different influences on the eventual um, outcomes of treatments. So as a result of these mutations, um, a lot of patients with the mutation will present with very high white counts because, again, these cells have this proliferative advantage. The marrow can be packed with leukemia blasts, and the disease often behaves in a very proliferative fashion, but that isn't always true because, particularly in some of our older patients, we can find this mutation even in some AMLs that have evolved from a condition called myelodysplastic syndrome, and some of those um, may uh, behave in a more um, indolent or um, less proliferative state. So um, that's why um, looking for this mutation is, is important. Um, it is, um, can be tested for in a couple different ways. Um, one um, test that can be done in most centers that care for leukemia is a polymerase chain reaction um, assay, and this um, usually has a fairly rapid turnaround because, as you can guess, because this presence of mutation can dictate how we might want to treat our patients initially, it's important to have an assay that you can get a result on within um, a few days of the patient appearing. And then there's also um, testing through next generation sequencing, which can be more sensitive, but it often takes a longer period of time and for many um, centers would involve a, a send out test. So that would be how the um, mutation is assayed for. So this has, um, is a mutation that you know, has been known about for some amount of time and is important now because it, um, it truly can um, influence how we, how we treat our patients. It doesn't necessarily influence the percentage of patients that are going to go into a complete remission, but it does influence the risk of relapse of the disease, and that's why it's so important to know that um, up front. Okay, that, that was a really great uh, overview, and thank you for all that information. You laid that out really well for us. Um, a follow-up question on the internal tandem duplication or ITD versus TKD, tyrosine kinase domain, the two different mutations within FLT3. Um, you mentioned uh, ITD has a 20 to 25 percent occurrence, and TKD was about five to 10 percent. And you said one that, that possibly one was more difficult to treat than the other. Can can you tell us which one uh, is harder to treat than the other, and sort of why that might be? 
Yes, we can um, get it, get into that. I think that um, it's not so much the, the difficulty in treatment, but it's just the um, prognostic importance that the type of mutation carries. It's primarily the um, ITD mutations that are associated with the increased risk in relapse, and because of that increase, um, many hematologists, oncologists would recommend that many of those patients undergo stem cell transplantation after they get into remission, whereas with the tyrosine kinase domain mutation, um, many patients um, you know, will not necessarily have that mutation impact their overall prognosis. The effect on prognosis and outcome is, is um, much less definitive with that particular type of mutation, but yet it is also targetable by some of the inhibitors of the FLT3 mutation that we'll talk about later in the, in the program. Okay. Okay, great. So why don't we start um, and start discussing the two FDA-approved FLT3 inhibitors that we currently have, which are giltaritinib and modestorin. Um, do you want to start there for us? <laughs> sure. Um, the giltaritinib and midostorin were the two are the current two inhibitors that are approved by the U.S. FDA, and um, e each of these inhibitors has a little bit different um, array of um, approvals based on the you know the European approvals. And um, one um, that we'll talk about later called quasartinib is approved in Japan, but not in the U.S. or or in Europe. The first FLT3 inhibitor that was um, approved was um, midostorin, and um, it was um, initially not developed as a FLT3 um, inhibitor per se because it also inhibits a lot of other growth pathways that can be important in um, oncologic diseases and also in um, blood formation, for example, something called the um, a VEGF in, um, receptor and some other um, similar um, tyrosine kinases are also inhibited by that, whereas um, giltaritinib was developed later and more specifically as a, as a FLT3 inhibitor. So um, some of the first FLT3 inhibitors that were developed, like midostorin, were um, found to inhibit FLT3 just in the context of being examined in other um, um, cell types or other, other malignancies. And so they tend not to be totally specific for the, um, for the FLT3 mutations. And um, with time, some of the later um, inhibitors that have been developed are um, more specific, and those are given, they're called second-generation um, FLT3 inhibitors because they are more specific and they have fewer what are called off-target effects. They also tend to be more potent in um, their ability to inhibit the, the FLT3 um, receptor and to target the mutation. So the, the first generation ones are less um, potent and less selective, but you uh, might also think that um, because so many growth pathways are involved in AML, sometimes that lack of selectivity may actually 
um, benefit a patient, and we're, I think, still trying to understand that completely if some of these other so-called off-target effects might also lend some um, benefit in AML treatment as those agents are further examined in treatment of AML. So midostarin is a first-generation um, FLT3 inhibitor, and um, gilteritinib is one of the second-generation um, FLT3 inhibitors. And there are also um, some differences in the inhibitors that have been developed in terms of how they interact with the, um, the um, a, uh, binding site for these, these proteins. There are some that interact with um, uh, the, the protein when it's in both an active and inactive form, and then others that um, only um, interact with it when it's in an inactive form at a little bit different site. And so there are a lot of um, different inhibitors that are under development, but um, gilteritinib and midostarin are the, are the two that we have available to use um, clinically in our patients at the present time. Okay. Now, are, are, we, are you using those gilteritinib and midostarin in the same in the same fashion, can you use them in the same way uh, to treat uh, AML patients? Are they used at the same time during treatment? No, they're they're actually not, and that kind of um, leads into discussing how these um, received FDA approval. The first um, drug to receive FDA approval as a FLT3 inhibitor was um, midostorin, and the the trial that led to its approval was the RATIFY trial, and that looked at the use of these inhibitors in newly diagnosed patients, whereas the trial that led to the approval for gilteritinib was called the ADMIRAL trial, and it examined um, the use of this inhibitor in patients who had already had relapse of their disease or who had not responded to their initial treatments. So currently, if one uses these as they are approved by the FDA, Midostorin would be used in upfront treatment of the AML, um, and that is at the time of diagnosis, and gilteritinib would be used in a relapse or refractory setting. And um, the trials that led to these approvals were um, quite large trials. They took, particularly for the RATIFY trial, I think because it was really the first trial to look at FLT3 inhibitors, it took a long time to accrue um, the over 700 patients who eventually got randomized to use of the midostorin versus use of a, a placebo. And these drugs, the midostorin was combined with the standard um, upfront treatment for AML, which is an anthracycline, donorubicin, and cytarabine. And in the um, randomization, it was found that um, the um, midostarin um, gave a superior, um, you know, length of survival. It was um, about 70-some uh, months for those who got midostarin versus only about 26 months for those who um, were randomized to the placebo. And they, the patients did equally well, whether they were on the placebo or the midostarin arm in terms of their count recovery. But um, the, um, there was a reduction, obviously, in the risk for relapse and um, an overall survival benefit for those patients who 
um, received the midostorin along with the anthracycline and the um, cytarabine. So that's what led to the um, FDA approval of the, of the midostorin. And interestingly, in that trial, they did include patients who had both the um, ITD mutation and the other um, tyrosine kinase domain, uh, domain mutations, and both types of patients benefited from this treatment. So it um, appeared to be active in both those mutations as would have been expected. And um, the um, midostorin was also able to be used in what's called the consolidation phase of treatment after patients go into a remission, as many of you are aware, that isn't enough to maintain um, the quiescence of the disease, so patients need to have additional chemotherapy, usually with high doses of, of um, a drug called cytarabine, which is the same drug that's used in lower doses in the induction treatment, and the midostorin or placebo was also looked at uh, during consolidation. And then um, in this trial, you know, many of the patients did go on to transplant, and after transplant they could also either stay on the midostorin or a placebo in a maintenance fashion. So it did look at um, the use of a FLT3 inhibitor at all phases of AML treatment. Now, the FDA approval for midostorin is just for its use in um, induction and in consolidation. In the U.S., it's not approved for maintenance treatment, although um, many physicians are able to, um, to utilize it in that setting if um, insurance approvals can be obtained. And the European um, agencies did approve the midostorin for um, maintenance treatment. So, um, so there's a little bit of difference between the U.S. and Europe, but the important thing is, is that whether this was used in induction or consolidation or maintenance, it um, appeared to have benefit for patients, and also, um, you know, uh, um, was was able to be quite well tolerated. So that led to the approval of metastorin, which is what we now have for use in upfront treatment in a, a standard of care fashion. And then the um, speaking about relapsed refractory disease, the um, ADMIRAL trial, um, the, all the trials with gilteritinib have um, butterfly names, interestingly. So ADMIRAL was the one where they looked at um, gilteritinib as compared to um, other chemotherapies that would normally be used for patients who have their disease in a relapse setting. And they um, compared that, so in this study, gilteritinib was used as a, as a single agent, whereas many of the patients who got the standard chemotherapies had combinations of various um, chemotherapy drugs. And again, in this trial, um, the gilteritinib did um, result in an improved um, overall survival, and um, that led to its approval as a, as a single agent in the relapsed refractory setting. So it's the drug that we have available to use in those patients who've had um, relapse of their disease or for whatever reason have not responded to their um, upfront treatment. I see. And was there additional information that was gleaned from the ADMIRAL trial since gilteritinib is a second generation FLT3 inhibitor? In, in just in regards to first generation versus second generation? 
Yes, as regards that, I would say that um, midostorin of itself as a first-generation inhibitor really has um, not a lot of activity as a single agent, whereas in the ADMIRAL trial, gilteritinib as a, as a single agent given orally in a dose of usually it's 120 milligrams a day as a single dose was able to, com- you know, to out-compete with um, some fairly intensive chemotherapies, and I think that does have to do with its being a second-generation um, inhibitor that is able to inhibit both the um, ITD and the tyrosine kinase and probably has a little bit um, more, more potency and a little bit more of an on-target um, effect in um, uh, the patients who have FLT3 mutations. And one one thing that I didn't mention earlier that's important, I think, to remember and um, as for patients and physicians is that unlike some other mutations, when they're present at the start in leukemia, they kind of stay with the patient throughout their course. With the FLT3 mutations, they can be lost after um, a patient goes into remission and then relapses, or there are some patients who don't have this mutation when they're first diagnosed, but then when they're relapsed, um, the FLT3 mutation can appear. So it's important um, as one goes through the, the course of the treatment to keep assay, assaying for the FLT3 mutation to see if it is present, because obviously at a relapse setting where we often have difficulty excuse me, getting patients back into a remission, if there is a a FLT3 mutation that's appeared at that time, it gives us additional treatment options such as adding in gilteritinib or other um, inhibitors that might be available on clinical trials. So with FLT3 in particular, are, are you repeating the PCR assay at all sort of bone marrow biopsies? Like, because can you have multiple, I think I read you can have multiple ITD mutations? Like, so are you repeating the um, testing to make sure that even from the outset, the FLT3 mutation isn't changing? Yes, that's an excellent question. I think that um, a lot of centers wouldn't necessarily assay for that at all of the bone marrows that are done to assess response. For example, the so-called day 14 or day 21 marrow after the patient has gone through their induction therapy and their um, their FLT3 inhibitor if they were FLT3 positive. But many would assay for that certainly, at, again, at a time of, of relapse, and we won't get into this in a great deal of detail today, but um, a lot of centers are um, looking for clearance of the of the FLT3 mutation, for example, at the end of consolidation therapy, and sometimes that requires a more sensitive um, next-generation sequencing assay than um, might um, compare with a, a PCR assay, which sometimes, you know, really isn't able to pick up that um, minimal or me- measurable residual disease, as might the um, the NGS type assay. So I think that's an evolving area, but I think that clinically right now the important thing is if a patient is is in a a, a remission morphologically and by um, you know looking at other parameters, 
but then has um, the blasts reappear either in the blood or the bone marrow, it's important at that time to reassess with usually a PCR assay um, to see if the mutation is still there or has, has changed because um, not only um, can these come and go, but as you imply the type of mutation, even between an ITD or a TKD mutation can change as the disease evolves. I see. Okay, that makes sense. And have there been studies comparing gilteritinib and mitosaurin, or is that not really necessary because it's first generation versus second generation? There are studies that are underway that are um, making that comparison, and it's not so much that um, that, that they're different generations, but I think that um, what people are trying to ascertain is um, would a second-generation FLT3 inhibitor like gilteritinib be more effective in upfront treatment than um, a first-generation FLT3 inhibitor like midostorin. So there are a couple trials that are underway right now that are similar to what I described with that RATIFY trial. Patients receive the standard 7 and 3 chemotherapy, and then they are randomized either to gilteritinib or to midostorin. And the object here is to compare um, whether the gilteritinib will be more effective than the midostorin in um, not so much in achieving, um, you know, complete remission, but in terms of um, um, survival free of the disease relapsing or in overall survival. So there are a couple studies that are underway nationally. One is um, through the ECOG cooperative group, which involves a lot of um, centers um, nationally. And another one is underway. Um, it's through the what's called the HOVON cooperative group, which is centered in um, the Netherlands and Belgium and has more of a European-Australian um, participation. So both of those trials are underway, and we don't know the results yet in terms of the comparison of these two um, drugs with combination with the um, anthracycline and the cytarabine and upfront therapy. But it's hoped that, you know, in the next um, couple years we will have, have that information to see if there will be um, increased advantages of using um, some other inhibitor beyond midostorin in the upfront setting. Now, a lot of, um, as I mentioned, because midostorin hasn't really had much activity as a single agent, I don't think there are a lot of studies um, that are underway comparing midostorin, for example, to gilteritinib in a relapse um, refractory setting. Most of these um, comparator trials are going on in patients who are newly diagnosed. Right. That makes sense. And I guess what would happen if you have both gilteritinib and midostorin for, for use in the upfront setting? Is there a reason why you would choose then one over the other? based on, you know, would it have to do with the uh, the mutation like ITV versus TKD, or how would you be choosing if you had both to choose from? 
Yes, with those two agents, the midastorin and the giltaritinib, I think there it would be determined primarily by what these studies might show in the way of efficacy in terms of um, preventing um, relapse or um, even death later. So I think that would be an important um, consideration. And I think it also would be important to, um, you know, compare um, side effects perhaps um, if they're, for example, if they turn out to be equally efficacious and we have them both to choose from up, up front. They um, both are really quite well tolerated, but um, midastorin, for example, um, can have some uh, gastrointestinal toxicities. Um, some patients get a lot of nausea because when they open the um, blister pack that has the midastarin in, there's sort of a, um, a, an unusual odor initially, so some people have difficulty overcoming that, um, whereas, you know, mm -hmm. for example, ritinib can cause some um, liver or heart changes occasionally. So it, it, I think one will have to just look at the individual patient in that setting and decide what might be the best um, upfront treatment if, for example, these studies don't end up showing a lot of difference between them in terms of overall outcomes. Okay. Yeah, I did hear that... Uh the midastorin has a has a very strange odor to it, which I, I found interesting. Um, okay. Yes, so some some patients talk? say that if they open it and leave it open to air for a while, I guess like letting a wine breathe, um, that it it gets lessened with time. But others um, have you know are bothered by it no matter how long they open it in advance. So it's. Um, it's, it's not a major consideration, but just it may be that when we have a multitude of these agents to choose from, that even little things like that may start to mm -hmm. become important. And another um, factor is that, um, and again, this isn't so important in the upfront setting uh, with the induct, uh, what's called induction treatment, because most people are in the hospital. The midastorin is twice a day. Um, dosing the giltaritinib is a once-a-day dosing, but you can guess once patients get in the outpatient or get in this prolonged maintenance time after transplant where they're having to take these medications for, um, you know, again, we don't know the right duration. Will it be a year or two years? Um, whether you take something once a day or twice a day may have an impact for certain patients in terms of ease of administration. So there will be a lot of variables like that that, um, go into those types of decisions. And I guess sort of a, um, a, a parallel example would be in um, what we call chronic myelogenous leukemia. We now have um, four or five different um, inhibitors to use in that disease, and many of them are um, equally effective, but we just have to choose um, between them based on side effects and um, what um, comorbidities our patients already have. and um, what we anticipate their their tolerability will be for for those agents, and it'd be great if we could get to that point with the FLT3 inhibitors, if we had enough of those to choose from to be able to make decisions right. on this. But um, we're not quite there yet. Yes, yeah, so I guess that that would be a good problem to have. Yes. Okay. Um, let's let's talk about. Um, 
other FLT3 inhibitors that are in development and have shown to be promising in clinical trials. Can you discuss other ones that are in development? Yes. Um, the, the two that are in a lot of trials right now are um, quizartinib and um, crinolinib. I should also mention that there's another um, agent that is I, I wouldn't say it's fully developed, but it has been utilized in patients with FLT3 mutations, and that's a drug called serafinib. Again, it's another um, first-generation um, inhibitor, so it was developed initially as a inhibitor of a, an oncogene called RAF and is used in some other solid tumors also, but it still um, is used in some settings in patients with um, FLT3, so there are still some um, trials ongoing in upfront settings, and there have been some trials that have been completed in maintenance settings with that particular agent. So it's still, I wouldn't say it's under development, but it's still under study. And then there are, um, in terms of the quizartinib, it has um, been examined in both um, phase two and phase three trials. It is um, also a second generation um, FLT3 inhibitor but it is the type that um, um, only inhibits the um, inactive um, configuration, so it is not effective in those patients who have a tyrosine kinase domain mutation. It's only effective in those who have an ITD mutation, and in fact, when it's used even in patients with the internal tandem duplication mutation, some of them will, with time, um, develop a, a tyrosine kinase um, domain mutation um, just in the presence of that um, quizartinib. The quinolinib um, is also a second-generation inhibitor. It also is um, fairly specific for um, FLT3. It also inhibits another um, um, entity called um, platelet-derived growth factor um, receptor but it's really also quite specific and quite potent, and it also is being examined in um, several different, um, you know, phases of, le of leukemia with, the, with both. Um, and it's um, able to inhibit both the ITD and the TKD. So those are the two main ones that are um, in, you know, later phase trials at this point. Okay. And... So far as comparing those two drugs, is there one that's showing more promise than the other, or how are, how are they different so far as when you might use those? Yeah, that's a, that's a great point, and I think right now we don't have a lot of direct comparison between them. In fact, um, the um, quizartinib is um, right now being, well, in it, involved in a trial that's called Quantum First, and it's being com compared with, again, that um, 7 and 3 chemotherapy, and patients either get the quizartinib or actually a, um, a placebo, and the results of that trial are just um, starting to emerge in abstract form, and it is looking like the quizartinib, again, just as the Midostorin did in the RIDAP study, is going to have um, a benefit in terms of um, reduction of, of relapse and reduction of, of death. I think the effect on overall survival is 
less clear right now, although as I mentioned, this is just in um, abstract form at this at this point. And um, I think the you know again the key difference there is that um, this will not be effective necessarily in those who have the the TKD mutation. As far as the crinolinib goes, um, it also is in trials where it's being compared with midostorin in an upfront setting along with the 7 and 3 chemotherapy. So patients receive that chemotherapy backbone and then are randomized to either get midostorin or crinolinib. And those studies are also um, still uh, in progress, so we don't really have a lot of um, data in terms of any sort of comparative fashion. So we just have um, some, you know, phase one, phase two data to kind of go on. The crinolinib in some of its phase two studies actually had, um, you know, over an 80%, um, you know, long-term, um, you know, effect um, as, you know, with when combined with seven and three. Um, the quizartinib has also been um, evaluated in some relapsed refractory settings and, um, again, compared to chemotherapy regimens and um, didn't meet um, FDA approval in that setting, but it's possible that with this new trial where it was examined in an upfront setting against uh, a placebo that it may eventually get FDA approval in that setting. Okay. And for the Cronolinib trial, um, when when does this when do you, will this trial be completed and and do you think an FDA approval on cronolinib is coming? Yes, that's a that's a great question. I think that some of these trials got a bit delayed in terms of their accrual rates during the COVID pandemic. I think right now mm -hmm. um I'm told that um the accrual is has picked up again and is steady. So one would hope that, um, you know, the accrual might be finished perhaps toward the end of this year, but then it's going to take a longer period of time for um, the analysis to be completed because they will have to wait for relapse events or other events that will determine the endpoints of those studies. So it could be a couple years yet before we have the results of that study. So I don't foresee necessarily a, a quick FDA approval on, on that at this time. It will take a little while for all of that to, to mature. And I think the point the important point is is that these are all being examined in fairly very well designed, careful um, studies where they're being directly compared to um, another FLT3 inhibitor or to a placebo. And those types of trials do take time, which I know is hard for patients and for providers to um, have patients with sometimes, but it's important that these be done well and that we understand at the end, um, you know, what endpoints have been met, that certain safety standards have been met, and so um, it will take a little while to get some of these randomized trials completed, not only with the quinolinib, but also those with the gilteritinib and others that are that are ongoing. Yes, there's there's really quite quite a few out there being tested right now, so it's it's a flurry of activity, it seems. Yes, it is, and that's that's great. We have to hope that that activity will 
translate into um, benefit for our patients, and I think it just um, also uh, raises the issue that, you know, participation in these trials for patients who have split-3 inhibitors is very important if they're available at the centers where they're being treated. Mm-hmm. And if Cronolinib were to get approved, would that be a situation where Midastorin, like Cronolinib, would replace Midastorin, or is it just become, again, like another drug in the arsenal that you have to choose from? Yeah, I, th- I think either is, is possible. I think if the randomized studies show that it's um, much more effective than midostorin, and we should get that information because it's being directly compared. Um, the, the design of that phase three quinolinib study was really paralleled fairly closely to the RATIFY trial that led to the approval for midostorin. So we should have a lot of comparative efficacy data there. So if that's the case and it, it is superior, then I think it could replace it. But as you say, if it turns out to be just, you know, kind of the same in terms of response rates and relapse rates and overall survival, then I think it would just be, um, you know, another medication in the arsenal and we would have that opportunity to choose between them based on, um, you know, dosing considerations, potential side effects, potential drug-drug interactions, and we would be able to just choose which one we felt would be best for our individual patient as they um, sit in front of us. Okay. Um, Also, I have a question about can a patient begin to show or or can they have resistance to a FLT3 inhibitor or, you know, would you want to try another FLT3 inhibitor if they showed resistance to one FLT3 inhibitor? Is that possible? Yes, that that is possible, and I think that um, we're just learning about that, but there are certainly multiple means by which patients who are on FLT3 inhibitors can develop resistance. Um, Sometimes um, just the uh, changes that happen in the microenvironment where these blast cells grow can um, be altered by the presence of the inhibitors so that um, there are, you know, increased um, support for stem cells irrespective of the FLT3 inhibitor. There are mutations that um, can occur within the FLT3 domain itself that render the um, protein no longer um, affected by the inhibitors, and there are certain um, there's one mutation called a gatekeeper mutation that can um, arise, particularly um, in the in the um, presence of a of a type one inhibitor, and that um, prevents binding of all these inhibitors to the to the protein. And they, there are actually some inhibitors under development that are being specifically designed to kind of overcome that what's called gatekeeper mutation. And then what also happens is leukemia cells are so smart that because the FLT3 mutation is interacting with a lot of pathways in the cell um, that are what are called downstream or beyond the effect of the FLT3 inhibitor, some leukemia cells are able to find ways to kind of bypass that 
um, FLT3 mechanism and to, to grow independently of the FLT3. So there can be clones that evolve that are really no longer dependent on FLT3. So there are multiple means of, of resistance that can develop. And whether um, one inhibitor will be effective where another one wasn't in terms of um, resistance acquisition, I think we're still kind of learning that. But I think what sort of... Um, uh, um, uh, kind of nice um, view of that is that we know that there are some patients who received midostorin, um in their upfront treatment during induction, and then they relapse and they go on to receive gilteritinib, and they, obviously they have the FLT3 mutation in both settings, and yet the gilteritinib seems to be effective in a large proportion of those in a relapsed refractory setting, even if they've had prior midostorin exposure. So we have to hope that we will be able to use these sequentially, but I don't think we have figured out all of the resistance mechanisms well enough yet that we really know how to sequence them well or um, what ones will be effective when, when others haven't. Yes, sounds like there's a lot of questions still to be answered. Yes, I think the you know as you say there's a flurry of activity, but every time we have answer something, it seems like there are more questions that are raised. And I think you know while that sounds like a, a quandary, it also is a great thing that more and more is being learned about these diseases and about about how to treat them. Mm -hmm. Well, I've. I have a couple more questions. I want to make sure I save some time for um, caller questions as well. Um, what do you think is next for the four FLT3 inhibitors so far as trials or new drugs and development? Is it refining the mutation target, or do you think it's different types of drugs uh, to address the mutation? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I don't really know the answer to that. I think, as I said, there are a lot of these inhibitors under development. They're all a little little bit different, and it's going to take us a while to learn about where each one is going to be most effective. And I think that, um, you know, in terms of where things are going with this field, one thing that we didn't touch on is that both um, the midostorin and the gilteritinib um, were approved in combination, um, well, at least the midostorin up front is in combination with intensive chemotherapy. And the majority of our patients with AML are older, um, above 60 years old, and we really need a lot of trials to look to see um, how these FLT3 inhibitors that we, we already have available can be combined with um, less intensive um, treatments like 5-Azocytidine uh, or Decitabine or those drugs in combination with venetoclax. So there are a lot of um, trials undergoing to address that, and um, we're still not um, completely there in terms of understanding how best to combine all of those in either a, a doublet or triplet fashion, and I think there'll be a lot more to come regarding that in the in the near future. Okay. Um, and, uh, you know, this is just sort of a, a general question, but it seems that the care of AML patients has evolved so much in the last five years based on 
all the drugs that be, have become available, and it seems that it's now really work. You know, you really need to work with a specialist and receive a highly personalized treatment plan that's based on specific mutations and a, you know your own specific genomic profile. But how much has this changed your practice and the way you care for AML patients on a day-to-day basis? Yes, that's a, a, a great point, and um, I would say that even though we have so much more work to do, because even, for example, with the FLT3 inhibitors that we've talked about today, um, the long-term survival, for example, in the RIDAPT trial was still only about 50% of patients alive at four years, and that was a number of years ago, and we've made progress even since then. But when I started caring for patients with leukemia, um, we basically made the distinction between myelogenous and lymphoid leukemias, and most of our patients with myelogenous leukemia just had the option of um, doing what we call supportive care or getting the standard 7 and 3 chemotherapy. But now with um, knowledge about mutations that are important in terms of either uh, driving or sustaining the leukemia and having several of those that are targetable with agents that are either FDA-approved or are under evaluation in clinical trials. It has really um, improved the outlook for patients and has made um, this disease, um, you know, much more, I guess, interesting to treat, and it makes us all really um, aware of the great heterogeneity that there is in, in this disease and that really no two patients if you do a wide array of, um, you know, mutation profiles have exactly the same leukemia, yet there are these recurrent mutations that are themes within that spectrum of AML that we can target and that have, um, I think, already and certainly for the future will make um, a, a big difference in treatment outcomes for all of our patients. And in parallel to that, improvements have happened in stem cell transplantation and in how we are able to support our patients with antibiotics and transfusions. And so there have been um, improvements on so many fronts, but as I said, still so much work to to do to um, overcome this disease for so many of our patients. Yes, it's such a complex disease, but it does sound like we have made great progress, but so much more progress to make, too, as well. So let me just um, open the lines up for callers to see if there's um, any questions. If you have any questions about anything Dr. Liesel discussed today, you can call into 515-602-9728. And once you are on the call and ready to ask your question, press 1 on your keypad. Okay, it looks like I have a question from a caller that ends in 0653. I will unmute you and ask your question. Actually, uh, there's a caller that ends in 5272. I'm going to unmute you and we'll take your call first. Go ahead, caller. Uh, hey, hey, doctor. Um, thank you for uh, taking my call. Um, 
It's not so much a question as um, I guess I can add to the data of your studies. Um, I was diagnosed uh, two years ago, um, March of 2020, with AML with a split three along with four other mutations that I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, after my initial uh, chemo, um, which was the seven and three, um, I was given uh, metastorin, uh two pills in the morning, two pills in the evening for 14 days, and then after each consolidation um, was given the same dose for 14 days um, through that September. Uh, I was in remission a month after I was diagnosed, um, and then uh, last year, May 28th, I was transferred to the Nashville VA uh, and worked with Vanderbilt doctors, uh, Dr. Savani, um, and got my stem cell transplant and am back on Metastorm, uh, taking two in the morning and one in the evening as maintenance. But uh, as of my last checkup for my uh, first annual post-transplant checkup, they said that if a doctor didn't know my medical history looking at my labs, uh, they would never know. Oh, well, that's, sorry. That's great. Yeah. That's a... That's a uh, um... Yeah, they'd, they'd never know I had cancer, and uh, none of my gene mutations were uh, present in my last bone marrow biopsy. Uh, and I'm 100% donor. Um, well, that's that's fantastic, and I think you you described very well the um, the course with the midostorin that um, many patients with split three mutations would take through the induction and then through the consolidation, and now your post transplant maintenance. And um, it sounds like this has worked really well for you. So that's fantastic. So thanks for uh, yes, ma'am. Uh, like, uh, like I said, if if you want to access that information, um, Dr. Savani at Vanderbilt Hospital was my uh, uh, transplant doctor, and also uh, Dr. Michael Ashigbe at UT Health East Texas uh, Hope Cancer Treatment Center. Um, them and the VA would have all those records, and if they contact me to release it to you, I would be more than happy to. Okay. Well, thank you for um, sharing your story with us. You're yes. welcome. Thank you so much for sharing, and thank you for asking a question. We appreciate it. And I think that's all we have time for today, unfortunately. But if you have a question that that didn't get answered uh, that you would like to ask Dr. Lisa, you can email questions and I'll pass it along. Uh, my email address is karith, K-E-R-I-T-H, at healthtree.org. So let's see. That's all the time we have today. Dr. Liesveld, thank you so much for joining us today. We're so grateful for your generosity with your time and your willingness to share your incredible expertise with us. We would love to have you on the show again in the future to share more updates on your research and clinical trials. 
We wish you all the best in your clinical practice and your future research endeavors. Thank you. It was my pleasure to spend the hour with you. Thank you so much. It was wonderful. Okay. Thanks for listening to Health Tree Podcast for AML. Join us next time to learn about what's happening in AML research and what it means for you. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts.